are moving into the New Testament. We finished up our study of Elijah, and I don't know about you, but I learned a lot in that study. I thought I knew a lot about Elijah before, but I feel like I've learned a lot more and the, the greatness of God's faithfulness to him uh, through all of that. Uh, we are going to 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy is one of those uh, epistles of Paul, and you may not be that familiar with Paul, but uh, Paul... We're going to be studying that a little bit on. But he, he was one of the primary writers of Scripture, and I think that's one of the things that we need to understand, that, that of all the books of the New Testament, Paul wrote more of them than anyone else did. Uh, I've kind of steered clear of these particular epistles, which are called the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, even though we did do a study on Titus a few years ago. I've kind of left them in the back for a reason, and the reason is this is they were principally and primarily addressed to pastors. And Timothy, in essence, was a pastor. He was, a, he was Paul's protege, much like Elisha was a protege of Elijah. We just studied. So I've kind of left it in my, you kind of left these off for that very reason, because I see these principally and primarily relating to people who are directly involved in gospel preaching and gospel teaching and gospel ministry. Now, does that mean that we can't glean a bunch from it as, as people who may not fit in that category? And that's not true at all. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Uh, but anyway, we're going to delve into First Timothy this morning. Uh, my plan is to get through the first couple of verses, maybe, so... <laughs> we may be on this one for a while. As I sat down at my desk on on Monday and began, to, well, I actually started grappling with this a couple of weeks ago when I finally made the decision to do it. Uh, there's just a lot here, and uh, and I'm not in any big hurry. I think we need to take our time and we need to get everything, every little golden nugget out of here that we possibly can. Uh, before before we get into it, I just want to lay a little background for you. Uh, part of it is this, is we need to understand something, that in the days that Paul lived in, there was no internet, there was no telephone, there was no telegraph, there was none of this, there was none of that. And, and so communication over a distance always required someone going. Now, sometimes that person would go with a verbal message. Sometimes they would go with letters. And, and I want to remind us this morning that certainly Paul probably wrote way more letters than the ones that we have in scripturated before us. So we need to understand that, this was, that these letters were important. They had great importance because it required for someone to hand deliver these letters, sometimes traveling hundreds or, or even a thousand miles or more with the intention. One of the primary reasons is just to deliver that particular letter. And that says something of the great importance of these letters. And it says to to the people they were originally written to, but it also says something to the importance of these letters to you and to me. They're in the Bible. They're God's words. But just remember that letters are always written specifically from one person to someone else. 
So we need to remember this, that Timothy was the, the recipient of this letter. Paul was the author. Timothy, his protege, was the recipient of it. So verse 1. Uh, letters, some of these, these letters open very differently. For instance, what I would say is there's like a little introduction at the beginning of this epistle, and that's what the Greek word is for letters, epistles. So if you ever heard that, that's what it means. Uh, but Paul always does a little introduction at the very beginning of all of his epistles, and that's what we have here in the first verse. It's just simply an introduction. It's not really the equivalent of a salutation. We do include salutations that are letters, right? And that's just a simple little little greeting, you know, dear so-and-so uh, at the beginning of our letter. That's a salutation, and that's really what uh, the second verse represents. But just, let's just read it. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. New Testament Greek is almost a language unto itself. I mean, there's some resemblance between it and what's called classical Greek and even the Greek languages it's spoken today. But we need to understand something, that the New Testament is written in a particular form of Greek called Koine Greek, which is the Greek of the common people. Another thing we need to understand is this, is many of the words that appear in these texts in that Greek form are ancient words that were used by Greeks for many, many centuries before this. But in the New Testament, in the Scriptures, guys, they take on special meaning that they did not have before. A depth, a fullness that just did not exist before this particular language was used by these New Testament authors as they were writing the New Testament. Let me just give you an example of what, what I'm talking about here is the word apostle has been around for a long time. It was a long time before that. And what it just simply means is messenger or, uh, or someone sent with a message. That's all it means literally in Greek. But we understand that, that in the New Testament it takes on a greater, fuller meaning because we know it applies particularly to a group of men that Jesus Christ himself set apart for a purpose. And that purpose was to immediately carry on his ministry once he ascended into heaven. In his commission to them, he said, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the world. So do you get my point? That the way that you and I understand a lot of the terminology in here is different than it would be for people who were not considering the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay?
And let me just say this, that there are no apostles today. Every now and then you'll hear someone calling themselves apostle so-and-so, and let me just tell you there are not anymore. Our understanding, in, and this is the historical understanding of the church, is that this was a temporary office that Jesus created to immediately carry the gospel into the world directly after his ascension into heaven. And when the last of those apostles died off, there were no more apostles. So if you hear one, someone ascribing the title of apostle to themselves, you might want to think about it, especially if they are claiming to be a teacher of Christ. Uh, because we really don't believe that that, that that office is given any longer. Now let's talk about Saul who became Paul. You know, in the Bible, very often people's names change. Abram became Abraham. Uh, we know that, uh, that Cephas became Peter, uh, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We see, see people's names being changed, that Jacob became Israel, and there are lots of examples of it in the Bible. Uh, and we know that Paul happens to be one of those, that his name, when he's first introduced into the New Testament, which happens to be in, uh, in Acts chapter 7, where what's going on there is the, the stoning, the, the martyrdom of Deacon, Deacon Stephen. And Paul is introduced as being there, and he's standing there, and what he's doing is he's, he's protecting all the garments that people are talk, taking off and laying at his feet while they pick up stones and throw at Stephen. So even though we don't have any reason to believe that he actually picked up a rock, we know that he was there in full agreement of what was taking place. And if you know anything else about Paul, he's, he had a, an unbelievable uh, conversion Paul literally would have been the, the, the person in the day that Christians would have believed never would be that person who would ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. He was noted amongst the Pharisees as being the persecutor above persecutors. He was wreaking havoc on the church. Imprisoning people. And it wasn't enough for him just to do that in Jerusalem. What happened to him was he decided he wanted to go to Damascus because many believers had escaped from Jerusalem because of the persecution that was going on at the hands of Paul and other people. Many of them went to Damascus. And so there were believers now in Damascus. And what Paul had done is he'd gone to the authorities to get permission to go there and persecute Christians in Damascus. And if you're familiar with the story in Acts chapter 9, on the way there, he undergoes this conversion that is just unbelievable he has an encounter with jesus jesus talks to him and he asks him why are you persecuting me and you got to realize that that, that, that paul has been going around persecuting people for talking about the fact that jesus christ had resurrected from the dead and and you have to wonder what's going on in his mind at that point because he's got to be clicking like this i've been telling people jesus is dead and here he is I was wrong. He's living. He's real. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. Studied under Gamaliel. He was mentioned a couple of times in Scripture. But note here that this Paul who had severely persecuted Christians before. Jesus Christ sets apart 
as one of his apostles. It's an amazing thing. We need to understand that, that, that Paul would have been the last person to believe on the face of the planet that this would ever happen to him. And this demonstrates there's a lot of things. And one of those is God has a plan. And sometimes his plan is very different than our plan. Sometimes we don't even like his plan at all. But he's the planner. And we need to understand something. He works all things out to his perfect will and purpose. Let me tell you something. God is sovereign in absolutely everything or he is not sovereign in anything. Sometimes we want to say he's sovereign in this, that, or the other, but then we don't want to recognize his sovereignty when it comes to other things. But we need to understand this, that he's either sovereign in everything, that he's sovereign, that means you're sovereign in everything, or he's not sovereign in anything. If there's one single thing he's not sovereign in, then he's not God. But Paul is converted. But notice here that Paul does not become an apostle because of self-appointment. It's not that one day he decided he wanted to be an apostle. He saw Peter. Maybe he became a believer, and then, 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 he, then he saw Peter and John, and he's thinking, boy, that's a really important position, and, uh, and people would really think highly of me if I were to have that position and, and all of that. So I think I'm going to go around, and I'm going to start telling people that God's also called me. Jesus also called me to be an apostle, just like G- Peter and James and John and all those other guys. It wasn't an appointment by angels. He didn't send forth some angel to to anoint Paul to become an apostle. It wasn't even by the church. We know that Ananias prayed for Paul and baptized Paul and received him into the church. That saint who was living in Damascus at the time of Paul's conversion. But I want you to note from this that Paul is an apostle because no one less than Jesus Christ himself has appointed him by way of a command. In other words, Paul didn't even have any choice in this. Jesus, in essence, said to him, you will be an apostle, period. It's not up for discussion. It's not up for you to choose to do this or not do that. Very often in, in, in church circles, we talk about people's calling. We understand this, that every believer has a calling through the Holy Spirit from God. And if that calling doesn't come, we don't come. We understand that that is absolutely critical to a right understanding of the gospel and how it applies to people. We know that people don't save people, that God saves people. And part of that saving is calling us, calling us out of this world, calling us to himself. Sometimes we talk about calling to church, uh, as regard to church officers, to, to, to being a deacon and an elder. There's a sense of calling that takes place there. 
Sometimes we talk about people being called to the mission field. But let me just say this to you this morning. The basis of that sense of calling is not so nearly firmly grounded in Scripture as, as when God determines it will be, he commands that it is. It's not that he's throwing these things out there and saying, if you just happen to feel like doing this, maybe you ought to do it. You understand that his, that his determination that Paul was going to do this was so sound that Paul had no choice in the matter. It wasn't that he could deny it in any way, shape, or form. Let me tell you, it's expressed just as strongly as thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt have no gods before me, thou shalt not have uh, bow down to idols. That's the force of the commandment to Paul that you will be an apostle, period. And let me just say this as Christians, there's some degree to which that is, comes, falls upon every single one of us. I mean, we really, we, let's just be honest. Most people have this idea that, well, you know, I'm supposed to witness to people, and I'm, you know, and, and, and because I'm part of the church, I'm supposed to, do, you know, and, and whatever. But it's really up to me. You know, I can choose to do this, and I can choose to do that if I want to, or I don't want to, or, or whatever. But let me tell you, that is not the mindset of this, the, the Bible. It just isn't. Being a believer is work. It just is. And there's just no way of getting away from it. So what I'm telling you is commanding bears more weight than calling when it comes to what the scriptures say about such things as this. We have church officers. We're a Presbyterian church simply because we, have, we recognize that there is a biblical office of of. Pre, of presbyter or overseer or elder this clearly laid down in the new testament uh, and we know that these are men specially appointed by god but let me but i want you to know something and that is this is as far as people becoming officers here because we recognize the office of elder we also recognize the office of deacon both of those are biblical both of those for a church to be healthy you have to have both of those but there's not anybody in the, here, this church that has ever become an elder or a deacon because Keith appointed him to that office. Never. There's no one that's ever been a deacon in this, this church that was so because I determined that I want this person to be an officer. Every man that has ever served in this capacity was nominated by you, was trained by me, was approved by the session, and was elected by you. The reason is because the church has something to do with this whole picture. And what I'm saying here is this, is there's a sense in which God will reveal to his people whom he has appointed to these particular offices. 
Now, let me just tell you, that doesn't necessarily mean the church won't ever make a mistake. Sometimes things don't work necessarily the way they're supposed to. But I do want to say this as well this morning, and you all should probably understand this, and I've kind of alluded to this. This is What we're doing here speaks to me more directly than anybody else in this room. I just want to read you some things. If you've ever heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones, I would encourage you to read his stuff. It is really, really good. He was a pastor at uh, Westminster Chapel in London for many years up through World War II and had a great influence on the Reformed Church for many, many years. His writings are really, really... He did a, he did a study on the Sermon of the Mount that is not... There's nothing equal to it. If you want to understand the Sermon on the Mount, get Martin Lloyd-Jones's... Commentary on that. But he also wrote uh, a uh, landmark book on preaching. And I just want to read a little bit of that to you this morning. A preacher is not a Christian who decides to preach. He He doesn't just decide to do it. He does not even decide to take up preaching as a calling. Preaching is never something a man decides to do. What happens rather is that he becomes conscious of a call. Now, he uses this. I don't necessarily agree with some of it. A call starts in the form in one's own spirit. It is God dealing with you and acting upon you by his spirit. It is thrust upon you. I would say the only man who is called to preach is the man who cannot do anything else. Then he says this, he says, how can we be sure that we are sent and that we are not simply appointing ourselves? This is where the church comes in. This person must be confirmed by the church. History shows quite plainly that sometimes the church can make a mistake. So what do you look for? Men filled with the Spirit. That is the first and the greatest qualification Knowledge of the truth and his relationship to it. For how can the blind lead the blind? The preacher must be a godly man. He must also have wisdom. And not only that, he must have patience and forbearance. A man who has an understanding of people and of human nature, etc., etc. This this is a quotation from a more recent... uh, man who who wrote on preaching. His name is Joe Niederhood. A significant number of people in the ministry today are not truly called. There's no doubt that for people who love to speak, preaching provides satisfactions duplicated nowhere else. There are a wide range of perks that ministry ministers receive. I'm still waiting to see those, but (laughs) ministers are often well taken care of. Well, we have been. Only God knows our motivations perfectly. Remember that. Only God knows our motivations perfectly. It's extremely important that he does not think of himself more highly than he ought. In fact, he must regard others as better than himself. Over the years, their call becomes the most dominant force in their lives. The ministerial call is the conviction that one has been set apart by God to proclaim the message of his words. Ministers are men in bondage to the scriptures. A minister is called to proclaim the word of God, and his life is an expression of obedience to this one central task. 
A minister is a person who thinks about the Bible a lot, reads it a great deal, memorizes it, puzzles over it, and keeps coming back to it over and over again. I'm here this morning for a lot of reasons. And one of that is one of those reasons is you put up with me for 23 years. Uh, but let me tell you guys, I can't tell you that I've heard God speak orally ever. I really would love to have that experience. Maybe you've had that experience, but I haven't. But let me tell you, he brought me to the point that I couldn't do anything else. Lori was in the same boat. And let me tell you, I struggled with him. I fought him for a long time. But I just came, it kept coming back to this conviction that you're not where I want you to do. You're not where I want you to be. You're not doing what I want you to do. That started all of it. And let me tell you, there's some things about ministry I absolutely hate. But you know what, I, what keeps me going? Is I love to teach God's Word. I love to teach the Bible. I don't dread Sundays. I love Sundays. Because Sundays, for me, they're a learning experience. Because you need to understand that as I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching more to me. That's not fair to you sometimes because very often I'm saying the things that I think I need to hear. <laughs> you know, and, and all that. But you need to understand that what I'm saying up here, even when I'm, you know, getting high-voiced and all that stuff, I'm talking to my own heart more than anything else. But I love to preach, and I can't imagine doing anything else. I just can't. Not that I'm that good at it, not that I've always been faithful in going at it the way that I should have, or even today. But the amazing thing to me, I was talking to someone just recently, and I said, another preacher. You know how amazing it is that people... There are people in this church that have listened to me preach almost every Sunday for 23 years. Could I do that? I doubt it. But they're here week after week. And they're some of the most encouraging people that I have around me. Amazing. According to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. The word there, soter, that is translated as Savior can very legitimately be interpreted as Savior, as Redeemer, as re- Deliverer, and some other things. 
Now, we may be sitting here this morning saying these are really are kind of synonyms, you know, as far as Savior, Jesus, our Savior, and the Redeemer. It's all the same thing. But let me just tell you, every one of those words ha- has a nuance to them that sets them apart from the others. As Savior, what we're talking about here is Jesus saves us. And what does he save us from? He saves us primarily and most of all from the consequences of our sin. Right? He's our Redeemer. What does that mean? That means that he has actually purchased you. You think you're, you, you belong to yourself. You need to understand something. Jesus bought you on the cross. You are his. Deliverer, well, we know that uh, he delivers us from things like the bondage of sin. So what I would say to you is this, is in that particular word that we, we read here as Savior, that all of these things are encompassed. All of that, even far more. We might be able to talk about Savior from now till the cows come home. That's how far-reaching it is. And how deep it goes into uh, the very roots of our being. The interesting thing here is I want you to notice this. It doesn't call Jesus the Savior. It says God is our Savior. And we understand that there's a trinity and that Jesus is the second person of that trinity. So, so that applies to him too. But I want you to just take note here. It doesn't say that Jesus is your Savior. It says that God is your Savior. Which means that God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son all play vital and essential roles in your salvation. In every aspect of it. It's not that Jesus just said, well, I'm going to save Ben Brazel and Larry Cannell. You understand that this is a, is a full-blown effort on all three parts or all three persons. Parts would be a heresy, you understand that. All three persons of the Trinity. However, when it comes to salvation, there is a special part or role for Christ, right? You understand that. And that's why Paul adds Christ Jesus, who is the basis of our hope. Now, how would you define hope? It's funny, we use all kinds of words, but I'm willing to bet you we could bring up words today that most of us have trouble really coming up with a definition for. We kind of know what it means, but putting it into words would be maybe a little hard. What I would say is this, is it's, it's the ex- expectation of the fulfillment of something good that has been promised. That's what hope is. The expectation of the fulfillment of something good that has been promised. And God has promised us a whole lot of good things through the gospel. Hope, my friends, is absolutely worthless unless it's based on something that is very certain, something absolute. 
everyone hopes in something. What unbelievers are hoping in is, first of all, that there's no God to start with. Number two, if there happens to be one, they're hoping that they have made themselves good enough. But again, hope is worthless unless it's based on something that is very certain. As believers, we understand this. That Jesus is the very definition of hope. That apart from Jesus, there is no hope. There may be things that people hope in and hope for, but they are absolutely meaningless and worthless. Jesus is our only hope, and he is the only hope for the world. There is no other. Paul's still in the introduction. Now he moves on to the salutation. To Timothy, my legitimate or true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy was a young man that Paul encountered on his second missionary journey. And he was returning to a place called Lystra. And Lystra, by the way, happens to be the place that Paul was stoned on his first missionary journey. And they thought he was dead. But he's returned on his second missionary journey. And Lystra was one of the first places he came to. And when he got there, he encountered this young man named Timothy. And Paul must have been exceptionally impressed by this young man in the depth of his faith, in the depth of his knowledge, the depth of his commitment. Because during that stay in Lystra, he determined that he was going to take Timothy along with him. And what we find is this, as Timothy accompanied him all the way through the rest of his second missionary journey and through a good bit of his third journey, and let me just say there's some sense to believe there may be, Paul actually had a fourth journey. But Timothy was one of those that entered into Paul's ministry pretty early on and stayed with him and worked with him through the duration. Paul very often calls Timothy his son. And we understand that that is in a spiritual sense. He often refers to himself as being Timothy's father, his spiritual father. Now, as far as Timothy went, he had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. Her name was Eunice. And we don't know for, for sure when she became a believer, but the, the, probably the, it's not too far of a stretch to conclude that she became a believer as a result of Paul's first missionary visit there. 
And it wasn't just her. It was also her mother named Lois. There's no mention of Paul knowing anything about this young man until this second journey. So it seems to be very likely that it was in the interim that, uh, that Timothy became a believer. And it's not too far of a stretch, I think, to have some idea that at least his mother and his grandmother had some part in that because they're also referred in another place in regard to this very thing. That his mother and his grandfather, uh, grandmother had something to do with his own conversion. Now, Timothy will become, he's, he's very important in the ministry of Paul. And he becomes probably Paul's number one dependable man. Sometimes Timothy was that man that he sent a hundred of miles to carry a letter. And we understand this, that Paul, just like Jesus, had willful intentions as he was going about his ministry using those disciples. And one of the reasons he was doing the things the way he was doing them was to prepare them, to teach them, to make them grow, to cause them to mature in their faith so that they would be useful to him at the time that he left. Paul was doing the same thing with Timothy. Timothy was a disciple of Paul. The relationship between the two of them would be very much likened to Elijah and Elisha that we've just come from. Paul very often ascribes Timothy's name also to many of the letters that he writes, especially the ones later in his ministry. It's not a letter just from Paul, but it's also a letter from Timothy. You know, I think about Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine. Probably as much, uh, you know, Paul had a big, did much better than Augustine did early on in his life because he was at least committed to religion. Augustine was committed to irreligion. He lived a very worldly life, a very lax life. He sinned big and he sinned big all the time and he enjoyed it. I read his confessions years ago, and I've had a copy. I've got two copies in my office, and uh, I recently decided I'm going to go back and read through August, Augustine's confessions. And let me tell you, the depth and the richness of it is just mind-boggling. And his, and, 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 and his knowledge and understanding of science and things like that that come through here will blow your mind. You'll say, how in the world did he know that? And he lived... Way back, he lived 1,700 years ago. Let me tell you, he understands science better than a lot of scientists understand today. That he was a, he was a big sinner and he enjoyed it and all that. But his mother was a believer and his mother prayed for him. And I just want to read some quotes to you from his confessions about his mother. Because she witnessed to him year after year after year. And she prayed for him year after year after year. This is how he describes it. He says, My mother, thy faithful one, weeping to thee for me, more than mothers weep for the bodily deaths of their children. 
her tears went streaming down, watered the ground under her eyes in every place she prayed. She replied to me, she believed in Christ, that before he departed, she departed this life, she should see me a believer. It was her mission. The conversion of her son. You know, I think about Hudson Taylor, one of those uh, foreign missionaries who went to China or early 1800s, that foreign missionary movement William Carey was part of and Amy Carmichael and some other people. Uh, now, he grew up, you know, learning from the Bible and all those other kind of things. But when he became a young man, he had fallen away from it and, and all that. But just, this, is, this is really one of the coolest conversion stories that I've ever heard of. Maybe you've heard this before. I've used it a long time ago. That anyway, here he is. He's become a young man, and he's entering into a profession. And he's left in this office one day by himself for a little while, and he gets bored, and he wants something to read. And so he finds a basket, and it's full of pamphlets. And out of those, he picks a gospel tract. He starts reading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Little did he know this. Little did I know at that time what was going on in the heart of my dear mother, 70 or 80 miles away. She rose from the dinner table that afternoon with an intense yearning for the conversion of her boy, having more leisure than she could otherwise secure. A special opportunity was afforded her of pleading with God on my behalf. She went to her room and resolved not to leave the spot until her prayers were answered. Hour after hour, that dear mother pleaded until at length she could pray no longer, but was constrained to praise God for that which his spirit taught her had already been accomplished, the conversion of her son. Amazing. My own mother prayed for my conversion for a very, very long time. And I just want to encourage all of you that have children, because most of us, many people in this room, have unbelieving children. And these things should really encourage us with the idea that we should never give up hope. But at the same time, we need to be serious about our praying for our children. It's very easy for us as parents sometimes to say, you know what, I can see that they're not really there when it comes to this or the other, but I think there's a little bit of teeny tiny stuff in there enough to give me some comfort of believing that they know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We must endeavor to pray for the salvation of our kids. And for those of you who have children who are unbelieving, wouldn't it be really, really cool if one day they came to you and you said, you know, said to you, you know what, I'm a believer now, and it's partly because I know that you prayed for me for all of this time, and you would give not, a, not give up on me when other people did. So pray. Please pray. Paul will have his share of people who fall away from him. A fellow named Demos is mentioned later on in this particular epistle. 
We don't necessarily know he fell away from the faith, but we know he fell away from Paul. He just distanced himself from Paul's ministry. But we also know this, that there are people, uh, Hymenius and Philetus, who are mentioned in 2 Timothy, who fell away from Jesus. Timothy won't be one. Timothy will run the good race and he'll fight the good fight. And think of all the people who are blessed by that ministry, including Charlie and Flora Barker. You understand that God can accomplish things through you that will resound down through the history of the church. Isn't that an amazing thing? But he can and he does it all the time. Church is for a lot of things, guys and gals. It's great. I love having a church family. I love coming here on Sunday morning. It's, like I said, I'd like, it starts building with me on Saturday night. You need to understand, I was up at 4 o'clock this morning. I mean, I was just walking here on Sunday morning and just say whatever comes off the top of my head. I spent time in prayer and, and study and all that every Sunday before I come here. Do I dread it? I, do, I wake up on Sunday morning going, oh, gosh, it's 4.30. I don't want to get up. No. I do it really with delight. Because in those dark hours of the morning, in the quiet, God speaks to me. And what I try to convey to you at these times is what he has said to me. Cool.